morning, everybody. Well, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Welcome to the South Suburban Vineyard Church. And like Mandy said, my name is Gino Allison. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you all to SSV, especially those of you who are visiting uh, for the very first time. Uh, I see some new faces here today, and it's always good to to be with you guys here in in the house of the Lord. You may or may not know this, but uh, January has been a fantastic month for us. Two of the Sundays in January have been record attendance weekends for uh, the entire history of our church, yeah. And so as God continues to, uh, to pour out his goodness and to answer our prayers and to set us as a city on the hill, we just want to continue to uh, invite you to be good hosts and to be mindful of seating and parking and things like that. And particularly after service, if you see people that you don't recognize, uh, without being weird, just, just maybe greet them. <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, it's, it's so natural for you want to go talk to your friends after service. And I, we had our leadership meeting uh, uh, on Sunday night. And I just said, hey, just impose a five-minute rule. For the five minutes immediately after the service, would you commit to go and greet somebody that you don't know? Again, you might be the first person that they talk to, so make it, don't make it weird. Get in and get out. Get the cues. If they don't want to talk, just let them go. Don't block the door or anything like that. Uh, but we want to be good hosts because I believe so, so, somebody spoke over this church that this would be a year of multiplication. And we've seen that uh, already this year. And so I'm grateful for what God is doing. Uh, beyond what's happening in this room on Sunday mornings, I said weeks ago that this is the best stuff. This Good stuff happens on Sunday morning, but the best stuff happens throughout the week. And so for those of you who are new uh, or need a gentle nudge, I, I urge you to engage one of our small groups uh, throughout the week, I, I, I was in the building um, this week and just popped into some of the small group, uh, small groups, and took some pictures. And so, uh, just this is Shannon's not so small group. It's so big that they, we have to actually have it in here. Twenty-four women gathered here for the women in leadership small group, and I hear fantastic things about what's going on in that group. If you just keep rolling, this is the men's. Uh, this is the men's fitness group where they talk about taking care of their bodies, and they actually do a workout. Mark is like, we caught him mid-air. He's jumping, and some of the brothers, they're working up a good sweat as they work on their souls and their bodies. And, of course, this is the Thursday night uh, women's group, and Sister Sister Rachel led the group, and they they just have a good time, and they actually have a meal there. And so the, 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 the smell of chicken... The smell of chicken was wafting down the hallway into our small group, and I was afraid we might lose some of our people as they... Wanted to go down and get some chicken, and of course, Brother Judge and his wife were uh, leading our small group. So, so there's great things happening. These are just the, the small groups that were happening in the building this week. Others meet at coffee shops and meet in other people's homes and things like that. And so, listen, you're missing out. If this is all you're experiencing, you're missing out. And I urge you to go deeper because we say around here that real community life happens in circles and not rows. You are currently in rows. Uh, what happens throughout the week typically happens in circles, face-to-face, and life on life. also just want to briefly minister, mention the More Love, More Power conference. We uh, planted out, we were sent out of a larger vineyard church in Urbana, Illinois, and every year they have this conference, More Love, More Power, and a few of us are going down to this, 
Are we going down? Yeah, we're going down to this conference in a, in a couple of weeks. Uh, and, and some of you have just asked about uh, just some opportunities for more equipping and training on the ministry of the Holy Spirit. This is a really good, this is a really great conference that really focuses on that. They have great plenary speakers, TED Talks. Uh, I'm, I'm going to be giving one of the TED Talks. They also have some great breakout sessions. And so I know it's a little late, but if you're interested in going down for maybe just a day or for the duration of the conference, this is a fantastic conference that we highly recommend. It's not in your bulletin. But if you go to morelovemorepower.org, morelovemorepower.org, you can uh, get all the information, see the speakers and the schedule. And I urge you to, um, to, to check that out. Uh, last but not least, Mandy mentioned baptisms coming up in a couple of weeks. And some of you have recently come to faith in this church or you've come to faith in general. And you're eager to take the next step of baptism, and some of you have asked what's, what's going on with that. And so typically what we've done in the past is when we offer baptisms, we have a baptism class for those who are interested, and those who take the class are eligible for baptism. But what we've been experimenting with the last couple of years is uh, around baptism time, the service, the Sunday before baptism Sunday, we just talk about baptisms in here. Basically, we give you a comprehensive sermon and overview of baptisms. And so whomever wants to participate after hearing that message is eligible now to, uh, to, to be baptized. So what you can do now is if you're interested in baptism, as some of you are, uh, would you just indicate that on the connect card that's in the seat back in front of you? If you want to get baptized or you want some information on baptism, it just helps us to know how many candidates we have, how many people that we how many people to expect. Some people don't make that decision until they hear a comprehensive sermon on baptism the, the Sunday before Baptism Sunday. And so you have a couple of weeks to make that decision. But please let us know if you wish to be baptized. Amen? Well, let me get into the message this morning. I have the privilege of continuing a sermon series that I started several weeks ago, a sermon series that we're simply calling Do the Work. And I don't know about you, but uh, I, I've been really blessed and challenged by this series. Uh, as you might know, we had paired this series at the beginning of this year with a 30-day fast that just ended a couple days ago. Amen. Hallelujah. Uh, and uh, we did that uh, to, to, to start the year right. Uh, we don't get caught up in, you know, fruitless you know, New Year's resolutions, but we do believe that there's a remarkable opportunity at the beginning of a year to turn over a new leaf, right? To look at our lives and to, to, to examine the things, uh, our priorities and our values and the choices that we make and the rhythms and the well-worn paths that we have established. And so uh, in light of that, I thought of uh, talking about this, this, this sermon series, the subject matter, Do the Work, because we say the good life, the life that God has for us, is rarely at the bottom of the hill, Right? Uh, it's typically, you have to ascend to it. You have to reach toward it. You have to climb toward it, not because God loves to see us sweat, because, but, but there's something about going after the things that God has for us. And the goal of this series is to help us to assess our real values, uh, to look around the room of our life, take an inventory. And, and some of us, as we did that, as we pulled away from some things during this fast, we said, man, I have an inordinate attachment to this person or an inordinate attachment to this food item or this social media thing or this television program, and I, I need to break that, right? So we, we were discovering things about ourselves uh, as we pressed into some more sacred ry rhythms. And the goal of this is not to just make you feel bad about yourself. The goal, of course, is to help us to see where we really are 
to rely on the Holy Spirit to help us rearrange some things. And the ultimate goal of all of this exploring and talking and leaning away from uh, things that are, aren't worthy of our attention and affection is to create new patterns, right? To make new value-based decisions to, in just a few words, do the work of pursuing health, right? And so, so far we've talked about pursuing generosity. We've talked about pursuing Christian community. Uh, we talked about pursuing prayer and life with God. Last week, we talked about pursuing wholeness. And I want to continue this series this morning by talking about pursuing the promises of God. The promises of God. And I think this is really, really important. And some of you are new to Christian faith, new to community life, and new to life with Jesus. And so you've accepted the gospel. You've kind of got a basic understanding of that, although you're getting a better understanding of it. But this whole notion of God making promises to us is somewhat foreign to you. But I'm here to tell you that the promises of God is super important, right? And the promises, if we just want to simplify it, are the things that God has for us. Simply put, the promises of God are the things, the good things. They might be challenging. It might take a while for them to unfold. But these are the things that God has in store for us. And I want to tell you that the things that God has promised us are very significant because they help shape and define who we are supposed to be and what we're supposed to do with the lives that God has given us. Let me just say that again. The promises of God aren't just, aren't just goodies, snacks that the Lord just throws out benevolently from heaven. The promises of God help define and shape who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to do in and with our lives. The promises of God produce a little thing we call hope, uh, the hope we need to, to do something meaningful with our lives. Now, I'll, I'll be the first to say that, hope, that, that, that the promises can be tricky because sometimes in our humanness, in our fallenness, uh, we can conflate God's promises with our wish list. In other words, we can read into Scripture things that aren't there. Or we can insert into the things that God is saying to us things that we just want that might not be God's best for us. I just want to label that as, as, as something that often happens so that we are not confused, but I'm talking about the promises of God that give way to hope, and hope is super important. Sigmund Freud says that there are two basic things that human needs, uh, a human needs, and that is love and hope. Love is you just we need like somebody to miss us when we're gone, somebody to care for us. We need to know that we're loved, that we're cared for. We need that, but he says that we also need hope. Uh, somebody else might put it a different way. He says we also need work or, or a reason to get out of bed in the morning. How many people know that a hopeless person, a person that doesn't have something to do with their life, just finds it hard to get out of bed in the morning, finds it hard to just muster the energy and the courage and the will to, to, to go on in life? Hope is, is like something to aim my life at. And what we say around here is that hope begins with a promise from a credible source. Hope begins 
with a promise, not just from Slick Willie that you can't trust, not just from somebody you, who don't have any history with, somebody who you, you, you don't know, you know where they're coming from, to really hope in something begins with a promise made by somebody that you can trust, somebody that you can count on. Because hope isn't just wishful thinking. I hope this happens. I hope this comes true. But instead, hope is the confident, blessed assurance in an unseen reality. I say it again. Hope, hope isn't just wishful thinking, but it is a confident assurance, a blessed assurance in an unseen reality. And the Bible are full of the promises of God that I am for you and not against you. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Anybody who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered, right? Promises, you, you, what, what you put in the ground, you will reap, right? The Bible are full of truth, promises that God makes. And these promises are helpful for us to live uh, purposeful lives, and they speak to things in our future. But much like the general promises of God, there are plenty of promises that God has given specifically to us that only apply to us. And this is helpful and necessary for us to understand because, like, God has put us all here on earth for a particular reason. I know somebody told you that you were a mistake, and somebody told you that you were an accident, and somebody told you that you should have been aborted. But, God, if you're here, if you're sitting here now, God had a plan for you. If you're sitting here now, God has something for you to do, a plan and a purpose for your life. And the promises that God makes us, both the general ones and the specific ones, provide purpose for us. And therefore, the promises of God are, hear me, priceless. They are priceless. When I was a, when I was a little boy, I would uh, go, go up to my dad and, and I would ask him for money, as, as little kids typically do particularly interested in dimes, nickels, and quarters when I was a young man because, you know, half a block down our street was, was the penny candy store. Anybody grow up with a candy store in there? Now, I don't know where these stores went, but if you had a dollar and you went, I mean, when, when I say penny candy, that just means that the, 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 each piece of candy was a penny. It was amazing. <laughs> you could go in this store with a dollar and you come out with armloads of stuff. I mean, there was candy for everybody. <laughs> I can imagine growing up in the 50s and 60s. I don't imagine what you can get for a penny in the 50s and 60s, but you were a rich man. You were candy rich, you know, if you had access to. So, so I would go to my dad and say, yeah, can I get a dime? Or, can I get a quarter? We want to go down and get some candy. And he just said, there it is on the table. Just, just go get it, you know. Uh, but as I got older, I, I wanted more money. Oh, like paper money. I want to hear my money when I crumple it in my hand. As I got older, he, he didn't give it so freely. He said, I need $5 for this, or can I get $10 for this, or $15 for this? He said, yeah. i tell you what. Get that shovel and shovel the snow. Then come back. Or, or go in the kitchen and peel those potatoes for your mother. Or get that mower out and, and mow the grass. And it's not that I mind doing those things, but... Like, I used to, you just give me the money for free. 
And, and from time to time, I said, Dad, why can't, why can't you just give me the money? And he would say, you know, my dad's a street dude. He's, everything he said, he had a kind of angle to it. It's all these slick sayings. He said, I would give it to you, son, but it might make a bad hustler out of you. <laughs> and then he'd laugh because he thought he was real clever, you know. He said, I would just give you the money, son, but it might make a bad hustler out of you. And those words were annoying at the time, and they didn't ring as true at the time. But the older I get, and I reflect on those words, I, I think the old man was, was up to something. Because certain thing, when certain things come too easy, you don't really learn what you need to learn if they come too easy. Isn't that right? When certain things come too easy, you don't value things like you should value. You don't develop the right muscles when they come too easy. You don't appreciate it. And if you don't appreciate it, if you don't value it, you have a high likelihood of losing it or, or squandering it, right? And so as I, as I think about this in, in, in light of the promises of God, in light of the things that God has laid up for us, I, I can't help but think of the fact that some of the things I ask God for, he's just like, yeah, yeah, it's right on the table. Just go get it. Yeah, just, just go over there under that rock. Just lift the rock. There it is. Real easy. But there's some things that God has for me that, that in order to lay hold of them, I have to climb to get it. I got to stretch to get it. Some of these promises, some of these things don't unfold, unfold easily. I have to tra traverse some, some, some rugged terrain in order to get it. Might have to scale a steep, steep mountain, proverbially speaking, in order to get it. There might be some foes or some enemies that I might have to go through in order to lay hold of some of the problem, promises because they're so significant. Because the things that God needs to teach me, the things that need to unfold, or the time that needs to elapse and according to his plan, that's just how it needs to work out. And I found that the significant promises that God has for us, both the general ones, but especially the ones that are specific to my purpose, the things that I'm supposed to lay hold of, often don't unfold quickly. Often I have to press and stretch. I got to do some work in order to enjoy them. And so in light of that reality, I'm calling this message this morning, Pursue the Promise. Because there's some work that some of us have to, have to do. And some of us will never, ever fully enjoy the promises of God. Not because God isn't good. Not because you aren't smart and talented and good at certain things. But because some of us won't do the work that it takes to press into the place and to secure the things that God has for us. Pursue the promise uh, suggests that we might have to go after it in a way that we might otherwise be uncomfortable doing. We might have to expend some energy and have to be patient in ways that we're uncomfortable with. Pursue the promise is our title today. I want to look at a passage of Scripture in the Old Testament, Numbers chapter 13. If you would meet me in Numbers chapter 13 this morning. There are Bibles on the edges of your rows. There are also, uh, we'll also be projecting the words on the screens. Feel free also to interact with the text through your mobile devices. While you find Numbers chapter 13, let me pray for us this morning. Father in heaven, we thank you for your promises. We thank you for your goodness. I thank you, even though I don't know all of what they are, I thank you for the good things that you have in store for me. But Father, I know that there is work that needs to be done. 
there are things you're trying to teach me. There's maturity that you're trying to develop within me. And Father, I don't take that lightly. I ask that you would pour out your spirit this morning on us. I pray, Father, that you would condition us to do whatever it takes to walk in what you have for us. And for those of us who have given ourselves to complacency and indifference and laziness, Father, I pray that we would be stirred today, that we would be wakened from our slumber and given a will, Father, to do whatever it takes to experience what you have for us. Father, put power on these words that you've given me to speak. Move the preacher out of the way so that your truth and light might shine through. Do the heavy lifting today by your spirit. We ask all these things in Jesus' mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. Numbers chapter 13. I'm going to start at verse 1. The Lord, now, the Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I am giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He sent out 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camp in the wilderness of Paran. I'm going to skip down to verse 17. Moses gave the men these instructions as he sent them out to explore the land. Go north through the Negev into the hill country. See what the land is like, Canaan that is, and find out whether the people living there are strong or weak, few or many. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do their towns have walls or are they unprotected like open camps? Is the soil fertile or poor? Excuse me. Are there many trees? Do your best to bring back some samples of the crops you see there. It happened to be the season for harvesting the first ripe grapes. Verse 21. So they went up and explored the land from the wilderness of Zan as far as Rahab near Lebo Hamath. And going north, they passed through the Negev and arrived at Hebron, where Ahimen, Sheshai, and Talmai, all descendants of Anak, lived. The ancient town of Hebron was founded seven years before the Egyptian city of Zoan. When they came to the valley of Eshkol, they cut down a branch with a single cluster of grapes so large that it took two, men, two of them to carry it on a pole between them. They also bought back samples of the pomegranates and figs. That place was called the valley of Eshkol, which means cluster, because of the cluster of grapes the Israelite men cut there. After exploring the land for 40 days... The men returned to Moses and Aaron and the whole community of Israel at Kadesh in the wilderness of Paran. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and showed them the fruit they had taken from the land. Verse 27. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. But the people living there are powerful. But the people living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. The Amalekites live in the Gav. The Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and along the Jordan Valley. They continue. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once and take the land, he said. We certainly can conquer it. But the other men who had explored the land with them disagreed. We can't go up against them. They are strong, stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes to live there. 
and all the people we saw were huge. Verse 33, we even saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's what they thought too. So this is a fascinating story to me. It's a familiar story to some of you, particularly if you grew up in church going to Sunday school. But basically, the context here is that the children of Israel have been liberated from their Egyptian slaveholders. Moses, in obedience to God, has gone to the Pharaoh and through just this huge ordeal, uh, caused Pharaoh to let the children of Israel go. And so they left, and now they're heading toward the land that God has promised them. And they would soon discover that like many of the things that God has for us, they would not come easy. And they would not come quickly. That there was work to do. And so I believe that there are things that we can learn from this story, from these people that might help us gain some insight as to how we're supposed to, in our own life, in our own life with God, pursue the promise that God has given us. And so using this story, I want to identify three things that we must do in order to pursue the promise, to do the work of pursuing the promise that God has for us. The first thing I see is that we must first identify the promise. We must first identify the promise. A promise is no good if you didn't hear it. A promise is no good if you don't understand it. A promise is, 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 is kind of meaningless if you don't know what God has said. And so the question I ask is, what did God promise you? Just put that question in your mind and just turn it around in your mind and, and just get a park it there and allow the Holy Spirit to, to, to speak to that as we go along. But a more pertinent question relative to this text is what did God promise his people? Among other things, God promised his people the land of Canaan. God promised his people the land of Canaan. Long before this sort of episode that we read today happened, God made a promise to Abraham that Canaan would belong to his people. Go all the way back to Genesis 15. You see an interaction between God and Abraham. And that interaction went something like this. God said to Abraham, I'm going to make you great. The old childless Abraham who believed God had a little trouble with this particular promise because Abraham knew that he didn't have any kids. In fact, Abraham said to the Lord, Lord, my servant is going to inherit my wealth because I don't have any kids. And so you have, you have to pardon me, Lord, if I don't get excited about this promise because I honestly don't see how it's going to happen. So the Lord understanding that sometimes we need a little help in Genesis 15 verse 5 says this, the Lord took Abraham outside and said to him, look into the sky and count the stars if you can. You ever tried to count the stars? You can't count them all. Count the stars if you can. That's how many descendants you will have. And so God makes Abraham this huge promise that he's going to have all of these descendants. He's going to give him a son, and from those from that son is going to flow all of these descendants. Now get this. The sheer enormity of this huge God-sized promise requires ample land for God's people to settle. 
He made him a huge promise. Listen, you're not going to be able to number your descendants. It's going to be as numerous as the stars. This God-sized promise, folks need some place of their own to settle. Canaan. Canaan. If you skip down to Genesis 15, verse 18, the Lord says this. So the Lord made a covenant or binding promise with Abraham that day and said, I have given you this land to your descendants all the way from the border of Egypt to the great Euphrates River, the land now occupied by the Kenites, Kenizzites, Catmonites, all the ites, a lot of people living there. Just look, this is a long list. These aren't just one people. These are like huge groups of people, which tells us that this land is not only desirable, but it's huge. It's the type of place that can accommodate the God-sized promise that God made to Abraham that through him his descendants won't be able to be counted. This is the promise that God made. Hundreds of years before his descendants would see it. Nonetheless, this is the promise. And God reinforces this promise in the very first verse of the text that we read today by saying, Send out men to explore the land of Canaan, comma, the land I'm giving to the Israelites. He didn't say the land I might give to you, the land that maybe you can have. I'm still, you know... Just, I'm still trying to decide. He says, go and check out the land that I am going to give to my people. And so, in an effort to identify the promise, in this particular text, we know that the promise was the land of Canaan. I said earlier that the promise represents what God has for you. And this isn't just like we get to go to God's big vending machine and pick out what we want And anything that we want comes down, particularly if God is in a good mood. You have to understand something, and that is this, that God resources the purpose that he's given us. What that means is the good things that God has in store for us, the promises that he makes for us, isn't just some old sort of demented God just not knowing what's up and just giving out his good stuff because he's got too much of it. The things that God has for us are specifically and strategically assigned to us so that we might what? Carry out what he has put us here to do. If we're all made with a purpose, if we've all got something to do, God in his goodness will resource our purpose and give us the things that we need. And so here's the thing. If you intend to be a a person on mission and a person on purpose, you might need to have some idea of what God has put you here for. In addition, you might need to lay hold of the things that God has set aside for you so that you might do what he put you here to do. And in light of that, I'll ask you again, what has God promised you? What has God promised you personally? What has God promised you relationally? What has God promised you vocationally and spiritually? I think about this very often in my life because there are some specific things that God has promised me. Years ago, the Lord promised me that he would give us a diverse, multicultural, multi-ethnic vineyard church. And that was kind of a tough sell because I didn't see any anywhere. 
Some of you only interact with this church, but we're part of a larger uh, denomination, a larger community of churches, about 600 churches in the United States, another 1,500 or so around the world. And it is a largely white organization. The church that we planted out of was a overwhelmingly white congregation, which stirred up within me a holy discontent because I wasn't getting any of my cultural needs met. It didn't seem like a big enough issue to anybody to do anything about. And the Lord said to me one day, hey, when you start your church, just make sure it's a diverse one. When you start your church, just make sure it's a place where different kinds of folks can come and still be their authentic selves. And I said, Lord, that's a tall order. He gave me a picture. And what's the most beautiful thing about this season that we experience right now is that when I stand up here to preach week after week, what I see is what I saw. Now, we're a few thousand light. (laughs) But we're working. We're working there. So God promised me. He showed me this picture. That picture for me was a promise. I'm going to do this through you. There were some things, there were a few things we needed to do in order to make that happen. It wasn't super clear, but the promise was spoken. But there was some stuff that needed to unfold. There's some things that we needed. For, for starters, we needed some money. Next, we needed some, some people to come with us. We needed a team. We needed the Lord to highlight a city. And once we found that city, we needed the Lord to highlight a house. And all along this process, I needed the Lord to talk to my wife, convince her to come, you know, <laughs> quit our jobs and sell our house and move to some place that was away from her parents and her family and everything. She know, Lord, talk to this woman. I can't do it. Just tell her it's from you. This is not me. We needed places to rent. Eventually, we needed places to buy. This was the promise that God gave me. And much like everything else that God has given me and promised me or visions or pictures that he's given me, this was a, this was a God-sized vision. And if I could just be honest with you today, I prefer, I prefer Geno-sized visions. <laughs> Go-getter, I'm a self-starter. I, you know, I just, I, the Lord gave me a wide skill set. I just, give me something to do, I'm going to do it. And it's particularly annoying that the things that God sets before me to do, I actually need God in order to do them. I like geno-sized things. In fact, one of, my, one of my issues is that I regularly try to file down the God-sized things. I, I try to file them down and cut them down so that they are manageable. They're carryable. They fit in the boxes I have. They're portable. But how many of you know the God-sized promises, the God-sized visions, they're awkward. You can't carry them by yourself. You can't see them through by yourself. You can't even see the whole thing by yourself. You need others to co-discern and to help you make sure you're on the right track. This is a God-sized vision. What did God promise you? Personally, relationally, vocationally, spiritually. He said, this marriage is over. It's done from the looks of things. Or maybe God could promise you that you'd be whole, that he'd mend it. 
Maybe God called you to preach or to minister or to do something in his kingdom. And you can't see your qualification. You don't qualify. You say, this can't be. Maybe this is just me. What did God promise you? In your work life, with your kids, in your spiritual life, in the realms where you're struggling and where you're addicted and where you're bound and where you're broken. What did God promise you? And some of you never wrestle with that question. There's some things that God has promised me that I I haven't seen yet, but I got history with the man. Recent history. And I'm regularly asking, okay, what has God promised me? Because God is not a man that he would lie. And if he promised it, he'll bring it to pass. Now, typically I say that God doesn't owe me anything. And God doesn't owe you anything. Except if he promised you, then he's on the hook. If he said, I'm going to bring you out of that, he's going to bring you out. If he says, I'm going to fix it, he's going to fix it. Now, you may not live to see it happen, but he's going to fix it because he's a man that keeps his promises. The first that we have to identify the promise is a big, important part of it. The next step, assuming you believe the promise, is you have to go check it out. Somebody say, go check it out. Somebody else say, go check it out. This is an important step, too. Go look into the matter. This was a big step. Verse 1, the Lord now said to Moses, send out men to explore the land of Canaan, the land I'm giving to the Israelites. Send one leader from each of the 12 ancestral tribes. And so Moses did as the Lord commanded. He sent 12 men, all tribal leaders of Israel, from their camps in the wilderness of Haran to go look into the matter. He gives them very specific instructions. Verse 17, he says, See what the land is like and find out whether the people there living there are strong or weak. Moses got a lot of questions. Why does he have questions? Why is he sending them to find this out? Because God told them Canaan, but he didn't give them a whole lot of details, did he? Much like the promises and the visions that God set before us, he he rarely, if ever, and by rarely, if ever, I mean he never gives us all the details. And I like details. I want to know what I'm up against. Okay, you're going to give me a multicultural church. Who's coming with me? How much money are we going to get? What's this city? Okay, we're going to rent a Jewish community. Oh, then we're going to buy it? Okay, lay that all out for me, Lord, and I'll do it. It never works that way. I'm just convinced if you've got to know all the details, you'll never be obedient. As we learn, as maturity dictates to, to trust the slow work of God, <laughs> and heaven knows it's slow, we understand that there's usually a glorious unfolding. And oftentimes, as portions of the promise is spoken, portion of the vision is released, we often have to go explore and check it out. Moses says, go see if the people are strong or weak, if just a few of them or if there's a lot of them. See what kind of land they live in. Is it good or bad? Do they have walls or is it just open? Soil good or is it poor? Do they have a lot of trees? And and while you're there, bring back some samples. We want to taste. We want to taste what's there. I never taught on this text, but as I as I studied this this week, it really, it really hit me. There's this is just such a vital step in the process. 
This is such an important part of what it means and what it looks like to walk in or to walk toward, to pursue the promises of God. There's a lot of exploration work that needs to take place in order for it to unfold. And some of us are unaware or we've simply been unwilling to do the requisite legwork to walk toward the promises of God. You say, God, why can't you just give it to me? Why can't you just release it? It's within your power to do so. It would make this a whole lot easier. I'd be happier. We'd get on with this thing, and the Lord might say what my daddy used to say to me. It might make a bad hustler out of you. The thing comes too easy. See, this, this, this years and years as this thing unfolds, it's teaching you something. There's character being formed in you. There's patience. There's faith and hope being, you know, cultivated in your heart. God is up to something. I just, he can't just release it. He can't just dump it down. Often he invites us to participate as the slow work of God unfolds. And sometimes the vision, sometimes the promise is fuzzy, at least certain aspects of it, where God might tell you the what, but not the where and the how. He might tell you the where, but not the what and how, and on and on and on. And sometimes, many times, most times, we have to go exploring, check it out as we walk this out. That was true with us. The Lord said, I'm going to give you a multicultural church, multi-ethnic church. And I said, how? He says, just trust me. Do the work. So we set some things in motion. We would come up here, and we would just drive around the south suburbs just as we thought that maybe this might be a place. I want to see how diverse it is. My wife and I would just be driving around, and we'd probably look really strange to the people in the cars around us. Because, Babe, count how many white people you see over there. I'll count how many we see over here. You see any Latinos? I mean, if you're, like, outside of our car, you probably see us right? Oh, we were checking it out. We spent money to, 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 to get demographic surveys of the cities that we had, and we, once we settled on this, and even when we moved here, listen, I was always, always, everywhere I went, I said, oh, that looked like it could be a church. Old abandoned parlor pool hall or something like that. The kids said, Daddy, why we're in here? This is scary. <laughs> the stage would be over there, and kids going there, and my, I'd Go get my wife, drag her. She said, this, this isn't it. This isn't it. Let's get out of here. We're not even supposed to be in here. <laughs> Pastor David and Pastor Jordan, how many, how many pictures I would send them and say, hey, I think I found the place. Let's go see it after you get off work, you know. And we would just go exploring. Any little opportunity that looked like, because it was fuzzy. We didn't know. We didn't know we had to go and check it out. And much of what we went to check out, just it didn't pan out, right? At least one place did. My wife said, I heard the old Jewish community center is, is vacant. She said, I'm at work right now. Go, go check it out. I went and check it out. Drive five minutes from the house and come and walk through here. I said, oh, my goodness. I can work with this. Called the guy and said, hey, you know, can we set up a meeting? He said, what time's good for you? I said, I- I'm here now if you could. <laughs> can you meet me now? He said, well, there's a summer camp going on. You're not supposed to be in the building. I'm, I'm going to meet you there tomorrow. And this is just how much of the things 
right? We had, to, we had to go check it out. We had to go explore. It didn't just, am I right, Pastor David? It just, it just happened. And some of you said, I am the promise. God promised me this. And, he, and, and you've been on your couch waiting on it to drop in your lap. And some of you lack ambition. Some of you don't want to do the work. And some of us have just been ignorant to the way that God's economy works. Some of us have never been told that God allows us to participate with him and he, what he wants to bring out into our life. The healing that he has for us. God invites us to participate in that with him. The promises, the victories, right? The triumphs, the freedom, all the things that he's laid before us. Some of you haven't heard until today that God is inviting us to participate with him to see the glorious unfolding of that. And typically what that looks like is check it out. Details are often fuzzy. The specifics aren't always there. And sometimes you don't even know the where. You just know some of the surrounding details. But in this particular story, God had told them specifically the where, Canaan. And now they had to go and check it out. And after 40 days of exploration, this is what they came back with. They came back with a scouting report. They said to Moses, we entered the land you sent us to explore, and it is indeed a bountiful country. It is flowing with milk and honey. Now, the place wasn't really flowing with milk and honey. That's a figurative expression that basically means it's desirable. It's fertile. He even showed him the fruit, right? And he goes through that, but then he gets to verse 28 and said, but, there's that but again. And this lets me know this wasn't just a neutral dis- dis- disclosing of some of the more negative aspects. This was like, well, I told you the good stuff, but here's why we can't do it. But here's why this is a bad idea. This is why this mission is a fool's errand that's going to get us killed. The people living there are powerful and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there, the descendants of Agnac, and those boys are big. The Amalekites living in the Gev. And the Hittites, Jebusites, Amorites live in the hill country. The Canaanites live along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea and all along the Jordan Valley. You get what I'm saying. There's a whole bunch of people there. And these guys are bad news. This isn't for us. Now, it's important to understand that God didn't send them there to see if they should go. God didn't send them there to see, hey, go check it out. See if it's too dangerous. Hey, see if this is something the Lord might be doing. He didn't send them there to check it out in that regard. He sent them there to see what they were up against so that they might prepare, so that they might know how to pray, so they might know how they might get themselves ready, right? And some of us haven't learned the difference. Because some of us have been miseducated that the path of least resistance is God's perfect will for us. You don't have to walk with Jesus for more than a month to discover that typically the path that God has charted out for us has thorns and thistles and giants and enemies, rough terrain to traverse. Typically the path of least resistance is the farthest from God's will for us. Sometimes. Well, they misunderstood. 
I don't think that Moses made it clear. Maybe their hearts were overcome with fear and anxiety. And so they saw the things that existed there as reasons to turn away. And based on what happens next, we can gather that this wasn't a neutral report that they were giving. They were urging their community to not go for this. Which brings us to the third thing that we must do if we're going to pursue the promise. We must stand on the promise. We must stand on the promise. Because you saw the report, you read it. Those who went to explore, they saw with their own eyes, not just the beauty, but they saw the issues. And in, in many of their minds, the issues rang louder than the promise, rang louder than the things, the good things that they saw. And so for many of us, the key to pursuing the promise and enjoying the promise, walking in the promise, is to stand on the promise. Because I don't know if you could tell, but this report was going in the wrong direction. Ten out of the 12 men that went on the trip were giving a negative report. But there were two brothers that went along that saw things differently, particularly Joshua and Caleb. And not only did they remember the promise, but they were able to see in light of that promise the land differently than the guys who went there and saw through eyes of fear. So this guy, 10 guys come back and they're telling all the bad stuff. They say, hey, I don't think this is for us. But somebody pipes up, verse 30. But Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood there before Moses. He said, let's go at once and take the land. We can certainly conquer it. I like people on my team like this. He said, let's go at once before we talk ourselves out of it. Let's rally the troops at once because God promised us this land. We didn't go there to see if we should do it. We just went there so that we could prepare. Let's go at once. And how many of you know that it takes great courage sometimes, most times, to stand on the promises in the face of intimidating forces, proverbial giants, major obstacles, costs that you didn't budget for, people that make it difficult, naysayers. It can take courage to stand on the promise in the face of the intimidators. It can take more courage to stand on the promises of God in the face of opposing opinions and viewpoints. It can take even more courage to stand on the promises of God in the face of loud majority opinions. And many of us regularly find ourselves there. Verse 31 says, but the men who had explored the land after Caleb spoke up disagreed. We can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. How do you know? So the word says that they spread this bad report among the people. They, they sickened the people with this fearful report. And murmurs went out through the whole community, fear and terror, until the whole community decided that this isn't what we should do. Verse 33 is the most interesting because it says, hey, we saw giants there, the descendants of Anak. 
Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers. And that rings true. You can tell me how you felt, but the next part of this is puzzling, and that's what they thought too. How do you know? You asked them? You're sneaking through the place, and you see a giant, huh? Feel like a grasshopper? You're terrorizing you, you know, Mr. Giant. Do we look like grasshoppers to you? How can you be certain how you look to somebody else? They were not exploring in light of the promise. They were not checking things out in light of what God had spoken to them. And so it was easy for them to go by what they had saw. The late Miles Monroe says this, and I'll take this with me into my dying day. He says that sight is the enemy of vision. Sight is the enemy of vision. Sight is what I can see with my eyes, what's in front of me. Vision is what God said to me, the vision that God gave me. And sometimes the vision is strong. You get excited. You start making plans until you open your eyes and you see what's in front of you. And the enemy of the vision that God gave us, the enemy of the thing that we, you, were, you were so, you know, excited about is the thing that we see in front of us. And Miles Monroe says, if what I saw, the vision, is not what I see, then there's still work to be done. If what I see in front of me is not congruent with what I saw, what God showed me, then there's still work to be done. And so many times throughout the last 10 years as we've been working to make this picture that God has given us a reality, what we saw in front of us was so discouraging. In my own personal life, as God has promised freedom and breakthrough, what I see in front of me is so different than what I saw. It takes work and courage to stand on God's promises in the face of what my circumstances are telling me. I've had to stand on the promises. We fast forward to Numbers 14, verse 6. It tells us more what Joshua and Caleb said. The two of the men had explored the land. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, tore their clothing because the people were murmuring and complaining, griping. The land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land, and if the Lord is pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It is rich and flowing with milk and honey. Do not rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They are only helpless prey to us. They have no protection, but the Lord is with us. Do not be afraid of them. This is what it sounds like when you hold more tightly to what you saw than what you see. And some of us are here at this particular step. We've identified the promise, right? We've done all the stuff up into this step where we are actually seeing the opposition and experiencing the pushback and dealing with the voices of the naysayers. And we are at this pivotal moment right here where we need some help and some instruction as to what it looks like to stand on the promise. When holding out to hope looks stupid. When logistically it seems like it's a nightmare. And some of us, what it looks like for us to stand on the promise 
is to speak up and to remind the people, what did God say to us? What did God promise us? He said, we can have this. He said, we can do this. When the naysayers said, but what if it doesn't happen? Or what if it doesn't happen soon? Or what if we fail or look foolish? Or what if others don't like it or disagree? They would say, what did God promise us? What did he say? I don't know about you, but I want to be like Joshua and Caleb. God has shown me something. God has promised me something. And because he's promised me something, he's put me in rooms where I'm supposed to contend for the thing that he's promised me. I'm telling you, there's spaces in my life where I'm living this out. And I imagine that many people in this room are living this out where God has put you in rooms and put you in spaces to contend for stuff. To speak up and stand for the promises. Not only are we exploring this work of multiculturalism in in our own local church, but God has put us in rooms, my wife and I, in rooms in a broader venue context that don't always see this the way that we see it. It's not always comfortable to be the only voice in certain rooms when the majority of opinion is so sweeping. And there's a huge, you know, pull toward just not upsetting the fragile peace and just going with the flow and not saying what God told me to say and not being that guy. But recently I just feel emboldened to just say what the Lord tells me to say. No, God told us that we're supposed to be a diverse movement. That decision doesn't get us there. Let's talk about it some more. When somebody says, wasn't that conference great? And I say, it might have been great for you, but there was no people of color there on the stage. Like, that's not what God showed us. That's not what we're going after. And then you become that guy in the room. But oftentimes, this is what it looks like to stand on the promise. And you thought that standing on the promise meant that you're on your knees, praying quietly to God in your basement. What standing on the promises often looks like is you're standing up in a room full of people who think one way and say, I think God might be leading us someplace else. It means you're standing up in a room full of people who have already made their minds up to do some underhanded unethical thing and they wrap the language around it to make it okay and you say no that's not going to get us to what God promised us somebody's willing to stand out and to stand up and to contend for what God showed you even though it's not what you see I think there's some Joshua's and Caleb's in this room that God has put you around the boardroom table God has put you on, uh, uh, in, in proximity to people and situations and problems where you have the answer, where all you need to do is stand on the promises of God, but it takes courage. It takes courage. And I don't know why I'm spending time here, and worship team, you can come up because my time is up, but I think that there are some people, uh, there are some people in this room, and I want you to hear me, that God has put you in rooms that you don't feel like you belong in. He's put you there to be courageous. He's put you there to speak up, to be an answer. And what you've decided to do is try to figure out a way to stay in that room. And you've tried to figure out a way how you can just fly under the radar and, and not disrupt the fragile peace and let the things that God called you to be there to fix go on unanswered. And I feel like the Spirit of God is saying to some of you today that that's not why he has you in that space. To just go along with the flow. 
to just fly under the radar, to figure out a way to just stay in that room and keep everybody happy. The Lord is saying to somebody in this room that you are there to speak up and to be, in some ways, a disruption. Because if you follow the end of the story, Joshua and Caleb, they are the only ones and their descendants that actually inherit the promise because they were the only ones willing to stand on the promises and contend for the promise and stand up against each and every person that was saying, we shouldn't go. And so I come back to this question that I started with, what did God promise you? Put it a different way, what did God show you? And how is he challenging you in this moment to pursue that promise by standing on that promise? Is it vocationally? Is it relationally? Is it related to ministry calling or something? Does it have anything to do with your children or grandchildren? What did God promise you? How are you going to stand on it? How are you going to walk that out? And my prayer is that as we worship today, the Holy Spirit would would bring more light to that. That he would make it clear to you how you're supposed to walk this out and how you're supposed to be faithful as you pursue and hopefully later enjoy the promises of God. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for your truth. Thank you for the things that you've showed us. Thank you for the promises that you've given. Lord, would you grace us to believe you? Would you grace us to explore? And would you grace us to um, stand on the promises as you've presented them? May courage and hope arise in us, Father, as you send us to the corners of the world that you've called us to minister to. As you send us home, as you send us to our work, as you send us to our school, the places where we do life. I pray, Father, that this week would be a week marked by us standing on your promises, taking courage and saying what you say. And for, for, for those of us, Father, who have succumbed to our sight, what we see, the circumstances, the intimidators, Father, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us a vision of what you see, that you see us as strong and courageous and victorious, and you would give us the strength, Lord, to conquer anything that's in the way of what you promised us. That's our prayer today, especially as we worship. Would you do that? In Jesus' mighty name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.